the Hale Varsity Radio Saturday Morning Show, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Strap yourselves in. Here are your hosts, Chris Schmidt. Y'all don't even know he was a virgin until he's 28, and now, roll tide. And Mark Cranach. Time has come for someone to put his foot down. And that foot is me. Welcome to it, Hale Varsity Weekend Edition. Not Chris Schmidt or Mark Cranach. It's Damon Barr here filling in today. Chris is out on the baseball diamond watching Junior play. So we're doing a best of today for this Saturday edition. Coming up at the 8 o'clock hour, we have our usual rundown. We'll get Brandon Vogel. We'll get the Iron Horse, Gary Sharp, for you. Plus a little bit of Coach Gary Barnett from earlier this week. Uh, starting off the show, though, we have Marquise Buford. We have U.S. Navy SEAL Cade Courtney. And to start things off, we have former mobster and Colombo crime family capo Michael Franzese. Back in at Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Welcome in uh, former captain in the Colombo crime family and uh, motivational speaker and author Michael Franzese back with us on Hale Varsity. Michael, it's nice to spend a few minutes with you again. We were just talking Yankee baseball, a little bit of normalcy, huh? Yeah, it's a little strange to see nobody in the stands, but uh, at least we get to see the game. So uh, it's been great. Good week. Yeah, uh, Yanks are on fire. We'll uh, get into some sports thoughts in a minute, but want to start off and, and kind of get your thoughts on, on the Netflix series that's out and, and doing extremely well. You're, you're heavily featured in Fear City. New York versus the Mafia, and you've done a lot of projects like this. Before we get into that, for folks that are just checking in and hearing Michael Franzese, reset your story, if you don't mind, for folks that may be checking in for the first time. Sure, and um, you know, I think many many of them may know it, but uh, I agree. Let's let's bring them up to date a little bit. My dad, Sonny Francis, was the underboss of the Colombo family, uh, one of the five New York crime families back in the '60s. And uh, through a series of circumstances, I got involved in the life when my dad uh, was sentenced to 50 years in prison for uh, allegedly masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. And it was uh, when he went off to prison in 1970 that he proposed me for membership in the family. Um, like I said in the past, you, you can't just go and join. Somebody has to propose you and vouch for you. And really, we did that, uh, or I got involved basically to help my father out of what we thought would be a death sentence for him uh, at 50 years. So I, uh, I became a recruit in 1971, um, spent a couple of years proving myself worthy, and then I was brought into the life formally on Halloween night, 1975. And uh, you come into the life, you come in as a soldier. Um, I was fortunate. I did quite well financially for the family and for myself. In 1980, I was elevated to the position of uh, cop regime or captain. And, um, you know, I, I held that position until um, I walked away from that life in 95. And, uh, you know, I had some success. I mean, a lot of people know that, um, you know, one of the biggest um, street deals that I had was um, this whole gas tax scam that myself and another uh, person created for ourselves. And basically, we were taking the tax money on every gallon of gasoline and bringing in several million dollars a week as a result. And uh, at the same time, all this was going on. I became a major target of law enforcement myself, was indicted seven times. I had two federal racketeering cases. I had a multitude of arrests. And in 1985, I took a plea to racketeering, got a 10-year prison sentence, 
a large restitution went off to do my time. And just prior to that, I met a young woman uh, that's now my wife of 35 years. And to make a long story short, she she kind of uh, was the motivation for me to walk away from that life and try to, you know, preserve my family and so on and so forth. And I was able to do that. I got out of prison in 95 and through another series of events, uh, became a motivational speaker, a person of faith. And been very blessed to be doing that for the last 24 almost 25 years now so that's kind of the story in a nutshell well and and that story is tapped back into with fear city on netflix and new york versus the mafia michael what was life like for you in the 70s and 80s as you worked your way up in the mafia and all this was going on between law enforcement and the mafia Specifically, not only yourself being targeted, but other people you worked with being targeted, and eventually uh, the 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 squeeze on on the, the the head of the five families. Yeah, well, what happened? You know, I always say, uh, Chris, the golden years of the mob in New York and basically throughout the country, or really from the the fifties through the mid eighties, when uh, the government really did start cracking down with all the racketeering laws and so on and so forth. And, you know, that started to percolate, I would say, in the 70s when I came in. So, you know, there was tremendous law enforcement scrutiny on all five families during that time. And I came in just as as that was starting. So, you know, I mean, it was you constantly had to be on the alert. You knew the government was creating new laws like the racketeering law and the Sentencing Reform Act. And a lot of that was designed to go after, you know, my myself or my former associates. So. You know, we were kind of on, on high alert. Obviously, uh, I don't think it was uh, high enough because the government had some tremendous wins, um, you know, right through the mid-'80s when they locked up all the bosses, something that was unheard of. You're never able to do that because there was so much insulation between guys on the street and the family bosses. But when they brought that RICO Act, the Racketeering Act, around, you know, things really started to crumble. And... Uh, a lot of people fell victim to that in my life, myself included. Uh, I'm one of the fortunate ones that got away with at least be able to preserve his life. But a lot of people I know, uh, Chris, went away for you know to prison for life. Many of them died in prison, and uh, it, was, it was just devastating for that life, no doubt. Michael Franzis is with us. You can find him on Twitter at uh, Michael Franzis. And you mentioned the the time you had to serve. And how were you treated in prison? Were you feared in prison because of your stature in the mafia? Were you targeted as far as before folks knew your reputation in prison? How did other uh, folks within the mafia look out for you or did they look out for you when you were in prison? Well, yeah, in my case, I came in with, you know, a lot of media attention, so people pretty well knew who I was, but for those that didn't, I was never targeted for any bad purpose in there, and yeah, you know, there were so many of my former associates in there that we kind of, at times, hung together and people knew who he were. You know, the, the biggest issue I had is because of the fanfare that I had coming in, I had, you know, a lot of people wanting to make deals with me and do business on the outside. Uh, you know, at times the the um, uh, authorities didn't like that, so I was kept in lockdown quite a bit because they don't like you doing any kind of business, or if you're getting too popular in a federal prison, uh, they don't like that either. So the the way they do 
you know, the way they deal with that is they segregate you or move you to a different place. So I never had any problems, um, you know, in that regard. And, uh, you know, guys in prison were, were pretty well respected because, you know, I guess you can you can maybe compare, um, you know, the Mexican drug cartels, the, the leaders, to, mm-hmm. to the way we were treated in there. We were looked up to as, you know, the highest-ranking family or mob organized crime group uh, really in the country and certainly in the world, so that uh, we had a certain amount of respect that went with that. Michael, when it comes to sports gambling, uh, you have more and more states that are that are legalizing gambling. There's apps now. What has uh, the popularity of gambling and the legalization of gambling done, in your opinion, to the mafia? And were you able to to infiltrate in your time, uh, not only college ranks, but but also professional athletes? Were you able to have your hooks in, as you'd say, to, to some pro athletes in, in your experience? Yes, Chris, no, no, uh, no doubt about that. I mean, during my day, remember when people wanted to gamble, they had to go to a bookmaker on the street and organized crime, myself included, uh, controlled most of the bookmakers in our areas. So I had 12 or 13 that were under me, that worked with me, for me. And they had a lot of athletes gambling with them at the time. And, and many of them, you know, got themselves in trouble. They got in deep. And as a result, uh, in some cases, they would compromise the outcome of the game. And mainly that means manipulating the point spread. So uh, it, was, it was very widespread back then in college and pro. And, you know, I get asked this all the time because, as you know, I've been speaking about gambling uh, to both professional and college athletes now for the past 24 years. And, um, you know, it's still there. I think it's becoming worse of a problem now because of access. People can get on their phone, on their computer, and nobody's watching them, and they gamble and they get themselves in trouble. And I can verify this because I, I, I always hear that whenever I go to a college campus, I have people emailing me some of the athletes and telling me the situation they're in or a friend of theirs is in so you know it's never going to go away i think um you know we, we have to keep informing these young people educating them as to the dangers of it it didn't really hurt uh business on the street because i say this all the time whatever you gamble online or you, you know any of these legal gambling parlors you have to put your money down there's no credit and when they blow that money, what do they do? They go back to the bookmakers on the street, and they still feel somewhat comfortable with a bookmaker, you know, because bookmakers give them credit. They feel whatever they lost, you know, illegal, they'll go on the street, they can get some credit, and they'll make up the difference. And, of course, oftentimes they get in deeper. So, um, you know, it's still there, and it's uh, unfortunately it's a, it's a significant problem in all of sports. Michael, what's the most upside down either a college or a pro athlete ever got with you financially? How much? What's the number? Well, with pros, $700,000. I mean, the pros got in deep. And remember, back in my time, uh, they weren't making the kind of money they were making today. So if they were in for a couple hundred thousand, they were in a lot of trouble. And, uh, you know, for some reason, it's my experience, and I know I shouldn't throw a blanket over everyone, but... But uh, they don't gamble well, athletes. I don't know if it's emotion with that, you know, based upon emotion or what. But and they love to gamble. When I say they, I mean I'm not obviously saying every every athlete in the mm-hmm. sport, but so many of them love to gamble because it's really an extension of their competitiveness. You know, they raise the stakes, whether it be on their own contest or on another. 
Uh, they just like watching the game when they have more at stake than just watching the game and the outcome. You know, they have a, they have a real win-loss uh, uh, situation going on whenever they watch a game. So uh, some of them got in really deep. I mean, I, I've had athletes back then into me for a quarter of a million dollars. And uh, when they get in that deep, you know, they, they got to do your bidding. Uh, because I, I tell them all the time, you do not get away with a gambling debt, whether it be legal or on the street. When you have a loss, you're going to pay. And if you don't have the money to pay, well, then you're going to make it up in another way. And uh, that's just the reality of it. College kids or, or pros easier to prey on? Um, well, in, in the college kids are easier uh, because they're green and they don't realize what they're getting involved in. And for a college kid, if he's into you know a bookie or he's in trouble for four, five, six grand, that's a lot of money. And, you know, the biggest thing with a college kid is, hey, you're never going to the pros. You're playing ball right now. You want to make some money for yourself before you get out of school. Here's what we need you to do. And if you're in trouble because you already lost money, well, here's what you're going to do. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to manipulate one of these young people into, um, you know, doing your bidding in their hopes of making a few bucks for themselves. It's not hard at all few more minutes michael franzis with us former captain in the colombo crime family he is uh now an author and uh, he is on uh, the new netflix series fear city new york versus the mafia i think uh, last time i saw the ranking fear city was number two with uh with netflix views uh just an incredible series and, and michael's Highly profiled in it with his experience in the mafia. And uh, Michael has been doing a lot of uh, faith-based work, motivational speaking. And, of course, Michael, uh, we'll get to your YouTube channel that I enjoy watching here in a moment. What's your uh, your relationship with Mike Tyson-like and, and Don King? How, how involved in the heavyweight game were you? Well, my relationship, excuse me, relationship with Mike Tyson today is great. I really, uh, I like Mike. I respect the, you know, the pretty incredible transformation he's made in his life. Because I, I didn't know him well back then, but I certainly met him, and everybody knew his reputation and heard so many stories about you know Mike way back when. But I've been fortunate to uh, you know to to spend time with him now, and uh, he's genuine, very sincere, and he, he just. Uh, He's just a real guy, and I enjoy that. I mean, we're two guys from Brooklyn that, you know, started out a little rocky, but uh, we've been able to straighten things out, so it's, it's, it's nice to, to be in his company. And Don King, you know, I, I had uh, a relationship with him way back when. Um, you know, he was involved with guys in Cleveland that uh, we knew. They were family guys. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, I mean, Don was out there to make money, and he was a hustler, and you know, we used him in that regard. And, um, you know, I, I was once the subject of a major undercover operation that really tried to take myself and Don King down. Fortunately, the government wasn't able to do that. But, um, yeah, that, that's the kind of relationship we had. So he was definitely a guy that was associated with the people on the street. Michael, a thought from you on, on some, some famous mafia men. Uh, Sammy the Bull, John Gotti, Jimmy Burke, Henry Hill. Of those folks I've mentioned, who did you work with most of the time or, or at all? Or, or who did you have the best relationship with? Uh, you know, the best, I think, was Jimmy Burke back then. Um, I just liked him, and uh, I think he liked me. You know, he helped me out a little bit when I was in prison when I first 
first got into uh, Lewisburg Penitentiary, he, he was upstairs, I was downstairs, but he was sending me all the prison supplies that I, I would need. And, you know, that that stemmed from our relationship on the street. We never really did business, okay. uh, but I knew I knew Jimmy well. I knew Henry Hill, uh, Henry well, rather. He, um, I had kind of an affection for Henry because during that whole Boston College uh, scam that he pulled, he had... Uh, tipped me off and gave me a couple of bets on it. So, uh, you know, that's that was my first relationship with Henry. And then, you know, I knew him throughout the years. And obviously, <clears throat> when he went the other way, uh, you know, it's a different relationship. A few more minutes. Hail Varsity Radio. Uh, our conversation continues with Michael Franzis, former Colombo captain. And uh, Netflix, Fear City, is the latest show Franzese is featured on. We dive into John Gotti. Uh, you know, John Gotti, I knew, I know his family well, um, and uh, I had relationship with John, some not so good. We had a couple of sit-downs over a few different things, but I respected John a lot, obviously, um, you know, and I can't say good or bad about him. And uh, Sammy, I didn't know Sammy that well. We had met, you know, the thing about that, Chris, in that life, when you're active like I was, you know, you're meeting each other in a club or mm-hmm. maybe in, a, in somebody's funeral or a wedding that we go to because we all went to weddings and funerals out of respect for, you know, other guys in our life. So you come across people quite a bit. And, uh, you know, look, there's a lot of talk out there about Sammy, and, and I don't like to judge somebody. Sammy did what he did, and, and um, he had his reasons for it. You know, some I agree, some I don't agree with. But, you know, look, who, who am I to judge anybody to say anything like that? So... I'm glad he's uh, trying to make a new life for himself now and doing some things. And, you know, people are asking me all the time, you know, the heavyweight interview of the world would be you and Sammy sitting down and just, you know, (laughs) telling stories and so on and so forth. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I know people are trying to make that happen. So we'll see. I haven't seen him in obviously 35 years, but... uh, uh, I know what he's doing. He knows what I'm doing. So we'll see if it ever comes together. So I, I think that would be an incredible two-hour, four-hour, heck, go five-part series with you and, and Sammy the Bull sitting down. Well, we both have some stories to tell. You know, certainly he with with his Gambino family, me with the Columbos and and the interaction and so on and so forth. I mean, I see when he, uh, you know, when he talks, people listen and, you know, hopefully the same with me. So it would be it would be fun. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but people are trying to make that happen. So we'll see. Uh, Michael Franzese with us. Hail Varsity Radio at Michael Franzese on Twitter. Was, was did, did Gotti drive people nuts, or did folks just deal with him out of fear? And specifically with you, because your reputation, your reputation with the amount of money you made and the gasoline tax, you were always five, six, seven steps ahead of, of not only law enforcement, but the way you earned was was uh, lucrative. I mean, so, 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 so lucrative. Uh, with Gotti, was it tough to do business with him? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, John was, you know, he was an egotistical guy. I mean, there's no question about that. I think it speaks for itself. His public persona was that way. And, uh, you know, I mean, I certainly had no reason to fear, John. You know, there is a fallacy out there, uh, Chris, and maybe I can clarify for your, for your listeners. Uh, you know, who's the guy you feared the most in the mob and so on and so forth? I get that question all the time, and they'll talk about Gotti or Lloyd DeMeo because these were 
public guys that were, you know, uh, had reputations in that regard. But what I tell people is, look, we were all, everybody that was a made member of that life, we were all capable of doing what we needed to do. So I had no reason to fear John Gotti. I wasn't in his crew. He couldn't hurt me in any way, shape, or form. Um, maybe the guys in his crew, because John had a reputation of not tolerating certain things or being fast with the trigger. Maybe the guys under him had some fear of staying in line because of, you know, they knew what he was capable of. So, um, you know, and I heard a lot of talk about John on the street. There was guys that, you know, really didn't care for his public persona and the fact that he brought so much attention, you know, into the life. And, you know, some of the other bosses didn't agree with that. Same with Joe Colombo. People were upset with Joey when he was going on television and when he started the Italian-American Civil Rights League and he was bringing the mob out into the open, which is something we really didn't intentionally ever do. I mean, obviously, we became the subject of the media but we didn't intentionally do it that way, and, and Colombo and Gotti did. So in that regard, that was frowned upon, no doubt about it. But, you know, again, I, I had no reason to fear John Gotti, and uh, I had no reason to be in fear of guys that uh, uh, that had nothing to do with me. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I clarified that. Sure. Enough, but, you know, again, in that life... People are trying to tell you to stay low-key, you know, don't become the subject of investigation, stay out of the public eye. I mean, obviously, it's difficult to do that when you're on the street and you're coming up. And, you know, in my case, uh, my publicity initially stemmed from my dad, who was extremely high profile back in his day. So I had the name right away. And then when I started to, you know, come up in that life and have some success and do well, well, then it really poured on. So... It just happens. It's never good for the life. And I've noticed this now, Chris. You know, I used to read, uh, well, I still do. I read the the New York Post every day. I read the New York papers out here from California. And during my time, there wasn't a day that went by when there wasn't a story about the mob. You know, myself, my former associates, what family, it didn't matter. Every single day. Now, you know, it could be three, four, five months before you see a story about anybody. So I think what's happening, the guys on the street finally said, hey, you know what, we got to go back to the way things were. And we got to stay low key. We got to stay out of the public eye. And that's what's going on because you can't survive when you become a, you know, when you get in in the crosshairs of the government and the media, you're not going to survive. It's only a matter of time before they bring you down. And so, you know, I think that's what's happening, certainly in New York, and I think it's true all around the country. You don't see publicity and stories about, you know, my former associates like you once did. And for them, that's a good thing. Michael Franzese with us. Michael, we'll end on this, and thanks again for your time. How often are you uh, doing episodes on your YouTube channel? Uh, Because you have a YouTube channel folks can subscribe to. They can check you out on Twitter, but you've kind of transitioned to your own uh, channel really on, on, uh, on, on YouTube along with what you're doing with different uh, projects. Yeah. You know, and, and the way that happened, I mean, I, I probably have, you know, 70 or 80 million views, um, and interviews that I did for other platforms on YouTube. So, you know, my team said, Mike, you know, you're doing this for everyone and, and the stories seem to resonate with people. Why don't you start your own? And you know what? I didn't realize I had a YouTube channel. I just never, I don't even know who started it. I never used it. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about it. 
And then uh, it was brought to my attention. So last month, July 3rd, we posted our first uh, video. And, um, you know, it's, it's really taken off. And I'm, I'm, you know, very appreciative for the people that are listening in and, and supporting it, you know, tuning in. So what we're doing, you know, we're, we're providing a lot of content now. Every Monday we're doing Mob Story Monday, a Mob Movie Monday. It's amazing how people enjoy you know, me um, critiquing some of the scenes in the mob movies. I mean, I've done that on other platforms. People really love it. They love to hear about, you know, the food that I like and that people are into cooking today because of all of these popular, you know, cooking shows out there. So, uh, and I'm telling stories that um, just seem to be intriguing for people, uh, Chris. And it's, uh, it, you know, I, I never realized this when I was in the life. You know, it was part of my life. This is who I was. It wasn't until I got out of the life and I started speaking, you know, not only all over America, but all over the world, the, the interest in the mafia life. It's, it's unbelievable. You can go anywhere, China, Singapore, and I've been to all of these places, Australia, and I'm surprised at how knowledgeable people are about the mob here in America. You know, Gotti is a, is a household name in some places, and, you know, Capone and, and all these. It, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I get asked in, in Singapore, uh, you know, who killed Jimmy Hoffa? I mean, I, you wouldn't even think they knew who Jimmy Hoffa was, but they do. So, you know, people enjoy it. And uh, <clears throat> But I always said this, and I don't, I don't go on there and just tell war stories. You know, my commitment in life, because I've been so blessed and so fortunate to be alive and to have my freedom, is that I, I try to encourage people, you know, try to give them hope. Um, I recently went into the you know life coaching, business coaching um, arena, and uh, we've got a community now, well over 2,000 people that have, that have logged on, and I provide content that I think is, is helpful to them. And this is kind of a commitment. You know, you got to give back in life, and, uh, you know, I'm one of the most fortunate people out there, so I, I do my part. But uh, hopefully people will tune in, you know, and continue watching. We, we just dropped another mob story. Uh, last night that really took off. So um, hopefully people are not only enjoying it, but getting a lot out of it. And from the comments that we're getting, um, that seems to be the case. So, um, you know, it's working. Michael Franzese and uh, his YouTube channel, Michael Franzese at uh, Michael Franzese on Twitter. Michael, it was great to spend a few minutes today and and, uh, we'll do this again. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Chris. And I hope uh, college sports uh, takes off in a big way this year. We all need it. And now, and now, back to Hale Varsity Radio. Stu, Charlie McBride for joining us. Uh, last segment, Mondays with Charlie, Nebraska's legendary defensive coordinator. We welcome in a uh, decorated Navy SEAL and uh, part of SEAL Team 1. A graduate of the Elite SEAL Sniper School and uh, part of Spike TV's Surviving Disaster, a podcast that drops tomorrow. Can you survive this podcast? Uh, veteran Cade Courtley is with us on Hale Varsity Radio. Cade, it's wonderful to chat with you again. Thanks for a few minutes. How are you? I'm doing great. How was your day, Chris? It's good, man. It's good. Talking a little sports now. I know we chatted earlier over on uh, KFOR and... Cade, give folks the the info on you, your service, and thanks for your service to our country. Give us, my listeners, your background and what is happening tomorrow with your podcast. 
Absolutely. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, being a, uh, being a Navy SEAL was the best job in the world. I'd do over again in a second if I could. Uh, I spent nine years active duty. I was platoon commander, uh, assistant platoon commander at SEAL Team 2, platoon commander at SEAL Team 1. I uh, was lucky enough to be one of the very few officers that got to go to sniper school. And uh, again, I just uh, I love that time in my life. It was incredible. Um, I got out a couple months before 9-11. When that went down, I wanted back in for payback, just about like every other American. And uh, that's when I uh, decided I was going to go to work as a security contractor for the agency. And that involved multiple deployments over uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. And so I guess, how did I end up in the survival space? Well, I survived, number one, but I learned a hell of a lot, not only training, but personal experiences and that's all come together in Can You Survive This Podcast, which launches tomorrow with none other than our first guest, former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill, who made Osama bin Laden go away. And it's an incredible interview. He talks about a ton of stuff I didn't even know about. And uh, I think uh, I think you folks are going to love it. Kid Courtley is with us. And can you survive this podcast? It drops tomorrow. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks that love podcasts. This needs to be subscribed to, downloaded, and listened to. Cade, you have done the, the work on the ground. You've done the work uh, in the booth. And uh, I want to focus on episode one tomorrow. We'll zoom out here shortly on some of the other uh, episodes that folks can check out from you, Cade Courtley. Can you survive this podcast? But with Rob O'Neill, uh, part of SEAL Team 6, um, a little bit, not to give it away clearly, but just as far as that that moment, that, that mission that, that Mr. O'Neill was a part of, uh, I, I would... It's probably hard to put into words yet he was able to do it with you. What was that experience like? What, what are folks going to hear tomorrow? Again, they are going to hear uh, stuff that they haven't read about in books or seen in movies coming directly from the guy who was there that pulled the trigger. And Rob, I mean, the cool thing about Rob, you know, he, he's a very humble and very friendly guy, number one, but he'll admit that he just happened to be that guy that was in the right place at the right time. And it goes back to when he went into a Marine recruiting office and the recruiter was at lunch and the Navy recruiter who was right next door saw him. He's like, Hey, come on in here. Hmm. And because that guy was out to lunch, it changed his life in the course of a lot of folks lives around the world. It just, it's crazy. And it continues on from there. Before Rob ever pulled the trigger dropping bin Laden, he was involved in so many other high-profile missions. Captain Phillips' mission, Operation Red Wings, Bo Bergdahl. He, he admits, he said, look, somebody called me the Forrest Gump of the Navy because I just always was there. And then he added, oh, but I can't run as fast and I'm not as good looking. So that's what you're going to get from tomorrow's interview. It's incredible. Cade Courtley, Can You Survive? Uh, this podcast drops tomorrow. Uh, his first guest, uh, Cade's first guest is uh, SEAL Rob O'Neill. Cade Courtley, a former SEAL himself and uh, SEAL trainer. So you go beyond uh, military missions and military people, Cade who else is going to show up on your podcast? Can you survive this podcast? What else do you get into? Well, I, I tell you what, I'm lucky to have an incredible team that I'm working with on this. And one of the best things about what we've got going on is the diversity of our guests. 
Uh, yes, Rob O'Neill, former Navy SEAL. But we also are going to have Adam Carolla who's oh, going to cool. come in. We're going to have Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. He's going to be an you know, astrophysicist. So it's not just military guys telling military stories. And the really fun thing about some of those other guests who haven't necessarily lived in a life-or-death situation is we will put them in a hypothetical survival situation, and we will see how they do. It's kind of like the old choose-your-own-adventure books. We're like, okay, are you going to choose A or B? Was that right or was that wrong? We will give them points. And the great thing about this is a lot of our guests are getting really competitive. Like, what did so-and-so get? Well, they got an 80. Oh, all right, let's go. <laughs> you know, so we're having a lot of fun. At the end of the day, folks, we're entertaining, we're educating, and we're saving lives. And so could anything be more timely right now than can you survive this podcast? Cade Courtley is with us on Hale Varsity Radio. So there are different scenarios you put people into, and one that, that jumps to my mind, and it was on, you mentioned Forrest Gump. Of course, Tom Hanks was in that. I would have been done, man, if I if I was Tom Hanks in Castaway. But uh, there's a situation that you get into with a guest. I, I think where, all right, what do you do if if you're uh, you're in that situation? You're on a desert deserted island in the middle of of the Pacific. Well, it's funny you mention that. I am getting ready to put a four star general tomorrow in an interview Ooh. through that exact same scenario. This guy is a incredible combat veteran, Air Force pilot, been there, done that, seen it all. Okay, sir, what are you going to do when you crash land? You swim to this remote island, and we put him through the test. It's going to be kind of funny. I, I'm just a lieutenant. I'm putting a four-star general through, <laughs> and if he makes a mistake, I'm going to have to figure out how I say, well, general maybe that's not the best idea <laughs> so it'll be interesting but it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun and that's what we're going to be bringing every week with can you survive this podcast kate while we're on the topic of movies uh, i'm a, a movie buff myself i love saving private ryan jarhead a lot of classic war movies are, are there any movies that you've seen that you thought wow that's the most realistic depiction of war i've ever seen um, I tell you what, the opening sequence in Saving Private Ryan, I do not think you could have done it any better from the perspective of somebody that was on the beaches in Normandy. I thought that was incredible, and how Spielberg didn't win an Oscar for that movie is just kind of atrocious, but it's a lot of politics when it comes to that. I thought that was incredible. Uh, you know, I've seen some other ones uh, that have, you know, have really gone out of their way to hit it as hard as they can, like American Sniper. Obviously, anything that has Clint Eastwood's name on it, you know is going to be outstanding. Cade Courtley is with us on Hale Varsity. Can you survive this podcast? It drops tomorrow. Cade, where, I mean, obviously iTunes and and Apple is is where you can go, but most podcast platforms, Google Play, Spotify, I assume your your show is going to be on all the the majors exactly we're, we're going wide on all platforms so again uh apple itunes spotify google podcast or wherever you get yours you will find it just simply search can you survive this podcast folks last thought here and, and cade courtley navy seal with us now host uh for his podcast can you survive this podcast you've also done uh surviving disaster you're a best-selling author Tell me a little bit about your, your book, A SEAL Survival Guide, uh, with, you, with your, your 
literature. Was that something that, that helped you get to this point now to do podcasting? I know you've done TV and, and you've, you've done, uh, obviously, you're an author. Now you're getting into the podcast world. That's a, that's a pretty sweet trifecta. Well, I tell you what, it's all, you know, it's all built on each, itself from my day one of SEAL training to my deployments, working with the agency, doing the TV series, writing the book. It's all built up to what I think is an incredible platform for 2020 that anybody can access. It's free. And back to your original question, why did I write the book? I wanted to put something out there, not that, okay, I'm a Navy SEAL and I can get through this. I wanted information, valuable information for the average person so they could read it, learn it, and basically use it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing better than getting emails. And I've gotten several of them. One that comes to mind, uh, a lady several years ago said, hey, I read your book. And now, and now, Hail Varsity Radio. Back with you, Hail Varsity, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Chris Schmidt, Elijah Herbal, newest commit for Nebraska football. Marquise Buford is with us. Marquise, thanks for a few minutes. How are you today? I'm doing great, and yourself? Doing all right, man. Thanks for uh, a few minutes. All right, before we get into the process of, of picking Nebraska, who had all the creative control with your video, man? That was a good video. Take us through that. So my guy, um, Jay Lit, he he's, he lives in Texas, right? I'm probably around thirty to forty-five minutes away from me. But it's actually a coincidence. Um, he's going to be attending Nebraska as well with the media crew. So it was like a great collab, and it was perfect time because he actually leaves for Nebraska in a few days. Okay, so a guy you knew, and it, it kind of came together, and people loved the video, and then you fire the mask up. <laughs> yes, sir. Had to for the um. It was just something original. I hadn't really seen anyone like pertain their videos from anything that had to do with the COVID situation right now in quarantine. So I thought the mask would be something you know, a little bit different than like a hat or a shirt to spice up the video a little bit. Uh, I thought that mask was hilarious. Probably my favorite part of the video. Uh, I just got to ask, <laughs> was, was, that, was that your idea or was that Jay Litt's idea? No, nah, that was actually my mom's idea. My mom and dad came up with that part of the video. So we can thank them for that creative idea. Marquise Buford's with us on Hale Varsity. Okay, you had nearly 30 offers. Uh, You're the top athlete in prep school. How did Nebraska stick out? Why did Nebraska stick out? Honestly, the coaching staff, they did – I'll say the coaching staff was the first part at least. They did an amazing job um, not only recruiting me, but – they did a great job speaking with my parents on a daily basis as well. And I feel like that was really the difference maker, making them, my parents, feel like a place where they could call home as well if anything ever happened they had to come there or anything like that. And they felt very comfortable sending their son, which is me, mm-hmm. over to Lincoln, which is 10 hours away from Texas. So that was a definitely a deal breaker. Then the fan base on top of that, I got to say, greatest fan base I've ever experienced in my life, honestly. And them reaching out, giving me words of encouragement, and even telling me from time to time, hey, if you, even if you don't come here, we're still going to be rooting for you and we'll have the utmost respect for the decision you make. I think 
that was the greatest thing I've heard from any fans throughout college football. Marquise, uh, your time in Lincoln, there was a July weekend. You took a trip. You hung out with Alante Brown. You hung out with Cam Taylor Britt. How did that trip kind of shake out and – what was your experience like when you made the trip? Because, I mean, th- there aren't official visits now, man, because of, of this pandemic, but guys on their own can, can drive up to Lincoln. So take us through what, what you did and what impressions were made. Um, honestly, me and my family, we wanted to see what Lincoln would be like without football. And that was the biggest part of the trip, basically going around the town, you know, getting to see – the different venues that they had. I know the Malcolm X home was there and everything like that. And then, you know, seeing the type of people that were around the city, everybody was very kind, everyone. And this was without anyone knowing, like, who I was or that I was a recruiter or anything. Mm-hmm. So that definitely stood out while we were there. And then on top of that, it's not too – Lincoln is not too big, but it's not too small. It's like the perfect size for what – it's going on there, and I feel like that was the biggest aspect that stood out to me when we took that trip down there, that without football, and if I wasn't to be playing football, I would still love to live in Lincoln, Nebraska. When we are looking at the football field, though, where did these, this Husker, uh, where's this Husker coaching staff see you fitting into the team? What, what role do they want you to play? Uh, is it defense? Is it offense? I assume it's defense, but... So... They've told me that they want me playing predominantly defense. So if I was there, when I get there, I'll be, you know, playing defense and everything. But seeing throughout high school, I was always on starting on both sides of the football, all state for offense and defense. They told me that, you know, if the time comes, they might throw me on offense a little bit in certain packages and different stuff like that. So, that was another thing that stood out to me, um, that they wanted to use my versatility. And they don't just, like, want to box me in one category or anything like that. They want to, you know, do whatever it takes to win football games. And that's one thing I love about this coaching staff. Tell me a little bit about your personality. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your competitiveness level like? And also from a... From a, from a leadership standpoint, how, how do you help lead or how do you use your voice on either side of the football? How have you in, in your prep days? So, honestly, um, my competitiveness is probably like a 1,000 out of 10. I okay. hate to lose it, and that's like with anything, like even just the video game, Madden, Uno, Connect Four, Tic Tac Toe, I want to win. And I want to win, like, big. And honestly, my leadership skills, I'm, I guess you can say I, I try not to be a rowdy, rowdy, all in your face screaming at you guys, but, like, I'm more of, like, a low-key. Like, if you mess up on something, I'm not going to put you on blast in front of everyone. I'm going to, like, walk up to you, have a conversation with you, and keep it between us. Like, that's not everyone's business. And then... I also like to lead by example, being, you know, first in sprints, different stuff like that, always the first to the weight room, last one leaving the field and everything like that. I feel like that's another great leadership uh, trait that I have as well. 
Marquise Buford's with us, uh, new commit for Nebraska, part of the 2021 class, uh, athlete, uh, can play in that secondary, can catch the football and, and go uh, to the house after the catch. What do you like, what do you like better? Because, I mean, Elijah and I are talking to open the show up, and I'm like, man, there's an out route, you catch it, and then you're, you're gone. You, you can shake tackles. You also do a good job of... Uh, finding the football defensively, intercepting it or forcing fumbles. And there's a lot of kids that that in, in high school are just bigger and stronger, and, and you have great size as well. But you do a good job of tackling, I guess is my point, to, to completely butter you up. So back to the original question, do you like offense or defense better? Ooh, this, is a, this has been a question that I've been asked all throughout high school. Um, I honestly have to say, I love defense, and I would definitely play defense over offense any day, strictly because I feel like it's a way better way to channel my aggression. You know, on offense, um, you can always go out and block the DB, but there's literally no better feeling than hitting somebody that has the football, especially when they're bigger than you. You know, it just gives you another type of <laughs> – Feeling going through your body like, dang, I just hit this 6'5", tight end, 225, different things like that, or just running back that stack with all these offers and different stuff like that. And also on the defensive ball, I feel like I can control what happens with me better. You know, on offense, you can't dictate whether or not you're going to get the ball or not every play. But on defense, you can go 100% and make a play every single play. So I would definitely say I like to do this side of the ball better. Are there any high-level football players, I'm talking high-level Division One or NFL players, that you like to model your game after? Ooh, definitely. So, it since I play a lot of different positions on defense, I will say when I'm at corner, I can definitely see myself being like Jalen Ramsey. I like to – I love – actually, to get in the receiver's head, you know, to try to get him out of his game and everything like that. As far as safety, I would definitely have to go to say it's in between Ed Reed and Troy Palomahu, strictly because how I feel like even with all my, like, athletic ability and everything, I'm always trying to think the game three steps ahead of the quarterback. And reading everything that he does and the whole offense with that, reading my keys and everything like that. I feel like that's definitely what separates me and where, like, I relate to those two, Troy Palomahu and Ed Reed, a lot. You listed both Jalen Ramsey and Ed Reed, who are both known to be some great trash talkers. Do you like talking a little trash in the field? <laughs> Look, it depends. Now, if I'm playing like a – if I'm playing a receiver, you know – that's not really doing that much talking. He's just playing his game and stuff like that. I I might give him a little pass on the trash talk, just lock him up and everything. But as soon as I come across that receiver that, oh, I'm this, I'm that, then that's when I got to get in their head. <laughs> Marquise Buford's with us. Marquise, uh, last thought. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your, your timeline and just where you're at with, with football here as you get ready for, for next season. How are things shaping up for you to be able to play? I mean, do you, do you have much direction yet because of this pandemic? Um, so as of right now, 
I'm still supposed to be going up to Connecticut at St. Thomas More to play my prep school season. I leave. I'm supposed to be leaving for Connecticut August 25th and getting down there, and we're supposed to get straight to work. Um, as of right now, they haven't given us any details as far as when, if we're going to have a season or anything like that. But if, if, as of right now, we're still doing Zoom calls, sending in our workout videos into Google Classroom so our coaches can, you know, make sure that we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. So as of right now, we're still set to have a full season. And once the season is over, I'll be enrolling at Nebraska in January. Marquisa, a last thought. What What's the vision? What did Scott Frost communicate to you vision-wise for this program? What's he want it to be? Uh, we're Look, we're definitely trying to get back to that old school Nebraska football. And he's definitely communicated very vividly that he wants to be back to that program, the winning program, national championships, consecutive years in a row type program. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to do everything on my end to do that, work hard, be a great leader. The Hale Varsity Radio Saturday Morning Show, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Strap yourselves in. Here are your hosts, Chris Schmidt. Y'all don't even know he was a virgin until he's 28, and now roll tide. And Mark Cranach. Time has come for someone to put his foot down. And that foot is me. Welcome back to it. Hell Varsity Weekend Best of Edition. I'm Damon Barr taking over for Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach as Chris is out on the baseball diamond watching Junior play. Last hour, we had Michael Franzese, Cade Courtley, and Marquise Buford rounding out today or this hour today. We have two Garys, Gary Sharp and Coach Gary Barnett. But to start things off, we have Hell Varsity's very own Brandon Vogel. We're back at Hale Varsity, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. We say hi to Brandon Vogel, managing editor for HaleVarsity.com and magazine, author, Dream Like a Champion with John Cook. Vogues, uh, how have you uh, absorbed the last 24 hours now that you know, hey, a schedule is out? Uh, did you throw a party last night with socially distancing uh, measures, of course? Yeah, I wouldn't say so much I absorbed it as I, as I reveled in it for the first time, maybe. At least for me, it felt like, okay, there's there's a chance here that, that some football's going to happen. So that's good. There's still, of course, plenty of safety concerns to think about with that. But just getting that schedule felt like, okay, there's, there's maybe a path forward here. And, you know, more specifically, we know uh, where that path goes through, at least for Nebraska and, and the rest of the Big Ten. So. Yesterday was a good day. It was nice to be able to talk some sports. What type of path is Nebraska on? Is it a yellow brick road? Are there wolves just off the path? I mean, when you see this remade schedule, were you like, if you know, when we had twelve on the on the ledger before things got erased, etch a sketch style, we knew that it was going to be uh, nine plus one. Who was the, uh, the the tenth beetle going to be? It's Sparty, which is cool. I think that'll be fun. Junior's already you know looking through his closet to 
to pick out what green he can wear in snow again. Uh, so, you know, I, I like the setup. I like getting Wisconsin at home. I like getting Penn State at home. We're, we're knocking on wood here as we talk. I think there's a real chance to kind of prove yourself and, and, and show all that work that's gone in, depth and strength training and all that good stuff, plus some veteran dudes. It's a great opportunity. That's how I look at September as you wind into October. Do you think the schedule's manageable or is it still pretty steep for Nebraska? It's still got a pretty uh, a steep climb there. It's not the it's not the final five games of the season anymore. It's I think games three through three through six that are daunting. But all things considered, like look, if you just said okay, you can trade Wisconsin Purdue home games. So instead of playing Purdue at home, you'll play Wisconsin at home. Like any team in the country would take that, right? Mm. So so Nebraska got that. The Michigan State game, it's just a tough break for Michigan State to be having a new staff engineering what they're they're trying to engineer and then not having any spring football and beyond that even having their kind of lead up to camp interrupted by by a brief shutdown of team activities so like the challenge there is is pretty apparent now nebraska playing them the last game of the season at that point i think michigan state will work through a lot of those things um, to whatever degree they're able, but it's still better than drawing drawing Michigan, which was the only one of kind of the big three from the East that Nebraska didn't already play. So schedule didn't get drastically easier, but it definitely didn't get harder, I don't think, for Nebraska. Is Minnesota poised for a fall, not only with Bateman leaving, but the way things open up for Goldie and I, I know the, the uh, Twitter snapshot I sent you is something that you will print in color and put on your fridge with the the Minnesota season schedule with Flex stare down on the left side of the schedule. I would venture to guess he's the only head coach with his picture on the team schedule. Is that a fair guess? Um, yeah, probably. I could see maybe Shiano making it for Rutgers um, because they've, a lot they've of erased all anyway. schedules. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's probably fair. Uh, I'm gonna guess that the social media team had had more to do with that than, than PJ Fleck did. But yeah, it, it it kind of confirms the the stereotype there, I guess, to a degree. <laughs> so um, I, I mean, I, I think starting fast to this season, where you're playing only conference games, is is going to be pretty big for teams across the board um, because you know there's there's something to just the wear and tear of of an all conference schedule. Like I don't think it's unmanageable. I'm not I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. But just like you know, if you drop a club a couple of close games early on and you find yourself at one and three and there's no break, there's no, you know, I think Northwestern was scheduled to play Morgan State in like week ten. And and there's none of that now. There's there's no week where you can say, okay, well we can get right on that week and hopefully turn things around. That's that's part of playing a conference only schedule is that, you know there are no breaks and minus maybe one or two games for every team. There aren't a whole lot, or at least teams in Nebraska spot where you're somewhere in the middle and trying to go higher. There's not a lot of yeah we'll just pencil that one in as a win. Um, and that's good. I think it'll make for an entertaining uh, Big Ten football season, and it'll make for a really volatile one overall. You're going to see that in the Big Ten. You always see someone rise up and bite somebody in the Big Ten. You, you have the last five years. I'm anxious to see the, the SEC 
schedule uh, with uh, what Bama gets. They already had some 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 tough crossovers as is. When you look at the, the quarterback battle for Nebraska, or at least the thought of competition a little bit stiffer than in past seasons, I'm pretty jacked for it, not only to see Adrian bounce back, but also the window of McCaffrey's been pretty fun. I think Nebraska can get really creative. This isn't a negative at all. This is absolutely a positive. Do you think Nebraska's ready to have Adrian back to form, and do you think he gets some uh, some Tebow-like options for McCaffrey this season? I think he could. I think it's a pretty good situation to be in as far as quarterback competitions go because, in, in my opinion, Adrian is a pretty heavy favorite, but not so heavy that you'd say, well, yeah, we could have this competition in name only and McCaffrey's not a factor. I don't think that's the case either. The, the thing with McCaffrey, like my personal hesitation with him is like, we haven't seen enough of him throwing the football. Like, running the ball, we know what he can do. Um, and he's electric enough in that aspect of the game that I think you do have to look at sort of a Tebow, you know, a freshman Tebow-like approach where you're saying, how do we get this guy involved? How do we get him the ball and let him just do what he does? Um, Is he the guy that can, you know, throw 34 times a game? That I don't know yet. He might be. I just don't know yet. Um, So for Nebraska, yeah, they've got a guy who's there, who's like shown enough that can that can make you say, "Hey, this isn't just a totally foregone conclusion. Um, it's enough to push the the incumbent in Adrian Martinez." But overall, I I expect Adrian Martinez to get that ball, get you know, get the call to to be the starter. I also expect them to find ways to use McCaffrey. He's he's too good not to, uh, in my opinion. Brandon Vogels with his HailVarsity.com and magazine and author Dream Like a Champion with John Cook. Top 25 uh, came out for the coaches. Nebraska receiving votes. Buckeyes, number two. Penn State, number seven. Whiskey, 12. Uh, Michigan, 15. Uh, Gopherville at number 18. Iowa, 23. Do you like uh, the rundown there for the Big Ten? Yeah, I think it makes sense with the kind of conventional coaches poll logic where we're we're basing a lot off of uh, what teams earned a year ago. Like, I'll be a little bit surprised if, if Minnesota ends up that high, particularly with the loss of, of Bateman. I mean, they were already looking at pretty heavy losses on offense. Uh, you add that one in there, and things get a little bit dicey, plus the new offensive coordinator. Um, so that's one that felt like a little bit resume-based rather than predictive. Um, but overall, like I think, I think it made sense. I think you could have put Penn State a little bit higher, though. The, you know, we'll see what happens with Micah Parsons. That would be a, that would be a big, a big loss too. Uh, arguably about as big as you could have in the Big Ten outside of maybe Justin Fields. So, it's, uh, it was part of part of my revelry from yesterday carried over to today, just getting that coaches poll, even knowing like. This season, I think, is going to be pretty chaotic, and you can just tear this thing up and throw it in the air, and we'll see how it lands at the end of the season. Um, but just kind of getting back into the signpost of August that, that football is coming uh, felt pretty good. You know, Matt Brown's hinting that, that Micah Parsons skipping his junior season for the NFL draft. Uh, we all were kind of wowed by Parsons as, as he was here for, for junior day. That feels like a thousand years ago in Lincoln, but no, no fans for Penn State. Is everyone in line now to line up and go play at Happy Valley? 
we'll take him well, this year. <laughs> you know, that, it's uh, so so. Penn, James Franklin has done a great job there. From from where he took over with that program was was still a you know a vintage Corvette, but but needed a lot of work. Um, to where he's gotten them now, with with just the talent level he's brought in, you know, there it's 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 Ohio State and then Penn State is the second tier. And then you still got to go down probably, I mean, Michigan's talented, but based on the on-field stuff, like Michigan State's still a step behind those two. Mm -hmm. And this year, you know, when we thought we had normal college football season on tap was, okay, can Penn State take that jump? Because they've legitimately got, you know, four or five of the, probably the best players in the conference, Micah Parsons being one of those. And they were scheduled to get Ohio State in Happy Valley. And it was going to be a whiteout. It was going to be the typical, like, insanity that we've come to expect from big games at Penn State. And now you don't have that. And, you know, when you think about, okay, if you're Micah Parsons now um, and you have a ton on the line, like, you have really nothing left to prove, like, are you coming back to play that game in front of no fans? Like, and, yeah, I understand there's kind of a argument for – don't let your teammates down. Like you just, you do what you have to do. And I don't even honestly know where I would fall if I were in that position, but you you look at a 10 game schedule and everything's going to be different. Like those guys that are kind of surefire first rounders, uh, much less top 10. Like I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. I kind of understand where, where they're coming from. Vogue's real quick. Uh, the moose was on last night and, pretty optimistic about fans and thinks there could be more than the, the 10,000 that would be allowed. Uh, you want to throw the old dart at the dartboard here with, uh, with capacity? Um, 20% seems to be about the number that, I mean, that's, that's what Illinois came out and yeah, we can joke about Illinois being like, you'd be happy to draw 20% most of the time. Um, but when Ohio state came out and said, yeah, that's kind of the number. And I think that's what you need to do to, to be able to effectively kind of put some distance between fans and we'll see. I mean, these things kind of change week to week in terms of how good you feel about that or how, how bad you feel about that. But that kind of seems to be where most teams are landing. And, you know, Texas is, I think it was their interim president said this week, he's like, where in the world are 25,000 people getting together right now? And for Texas, that would be 25%, which is kind of what they came out with. And, you know, like, that's a really good point. That's not happening anywhere right now. We've got a month to go. So, so we'll see where we end up, but it's uh Yeah. 50% numbers like that or higher seem pretty unrealistic to me. Brandon Vogel with us. Vogues, have a good uh, rest of your weekend. We'll get we'll get caught up uh, soon. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Now back with Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery, with Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach. Say hi to the coach, Northwestern and Colorado. And uh, big-time golfer, Gary Barnett, is with us. Coach, how's your Thursday? Thanks for the time. Uh, It's going well. Pretty interesting times, though, Chris. Man. (laughs) Yeah. Anything can happen. You are not a kidding, man. Uh, I was kind of shocked with 
the beginning of the week. We are now to Thursday, and we've been kind of holding our breath about a Big Ten schedule. That was dropped on on Wednesday. We'll get into that. I want your I want your your input, Coach, on just the the climate that's out there right now with the Pac-12 and the, the players that have spoke up with the players uh, tr- Tribune, uh, their their voice and their demands on the Pac-12. And you had uh, several Big Ten players come out with a letter not long after the Big Ten announced their schedule yesterday, not demanding monetary. Uh, input from from uh, the the conference or coaches, but more so health and safety. As you look at this, as a guy who's coached in a couple of different spots, what what's your reaction to uh, to what's going on in college football? Well, the first thing is I'm glad I'm not coaching. Yeah, because it would be really frustrating trying to uh, get a team mentally ready to play physically. I mean, I don't know how you do it physically, but team mentally ready to play and. You know, it's one of those things where you you have you've accumulated and recruited and worked hard to keep and get uh, really good players. You you think you've got a chance to have them all on the field at one time, and now you've got a lot of them opting out. You're going to see more of them opting out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, you really wonder with. All the things that are that is happening and all the problems that are being that are surfacing, mm-hmm. why even mess with it this year? And I mean, we all want it. We all want to see it. And we're going to be in we're going to be in therapy if it doesn't happen. Uh, therapists are going to make a lot of money in this deal, <laughs> but um, it would be so hard to be coaching right now. You don't know what to plan on. You can't plan. You don't know what your guys are going to do. Um, the it's not in it's you know coaches love control. They, I mean you have to have control when you're running a squad of 180 guys like like you are there in Nebraska, or 120 here, and all the people that work for you and around the players. I mean it, it becomes a 250 person organization easily, and you are in control and you're supposed to be able to to lead them and you don't know how to lead them because you don't have any control. It's all out of your hands right now. So to me, that would be very, very frustrating. I think, Chris, what's going to happen is, is as I see this thing, and I I think we discussed this before, but uh, I think that you're going to see the NCAA uh, have really down-to-earth discussions with the NFL about taking kids out of high school. Someone just bought the rights to the USFL. Uh, it's a perfect venue and a perfect way to start a farm system within the NFL. You take all these, all the players who think they, they want money and want a share of everything and just put them in the NFL. They don't have to go to school. They don't have to worry about all that stuff. Uh, they're not going to be on a campus to – experience the things that they think that are uh, that make them mistreated mm-hmm. um, you can eliminate all that by just having them go to the NFL in a in a uh, in a system that after a year or two years in that league or that system they get they get a it's like the GI bill they can go back to college sure. uh, they can see if they make it um, 
and you take you eliminate ten to fifteen percent of um, the players now that are are you know are are uprising and the ones that are that are bringing about issues right or wrong and um you know, it, it may not look the same. I mean, college football may not have the top 15 or 20 percent of players, or 25 maybe, mm-hmm. but um, at least the system can go on, and at least everybody is satisfied. Guys who want money for playing can get money for playing. Guys who just want to go to school and play football and be a part of the old uh, system can do that and get their education, and we can go on. Uh, and I think all of this is just pushing in that direction. And before it was just one side pushing. Now I think you'll see both sides pushing. Gary Barnett's with us, Sale Varsity Radio. Coach, that's uh, it's well thought out with, with you know, The Rock purchasing the XFL and, and maybe, maybe there's uh, some gray area there. It wasn't that long ago. What are we talking, six, seven seasons ago where – Kane Coulter was at Northwestern, and there was kind of the first steps in, in an attempt to unionize, and that's when the first discussions were really kind of on the on the front page. And I know you're close with Northwestern. How how big of a distraction was that then for that Northwestern team, with the focus being not just football and school, but hey, should there be some some sort of payment? And as close as you are to the Pac-12, how did this start? I mean, with with the with the Players Tribune, how did X number of kids, maybe hundreds? I don't I don't have the the, the number, but how did it get from frustration to let's publish a letter and and try and get some some money back to us? I mean, wh- how did, where did it go from A to Z? Chris, it's, it, that's been going on all. The Kane Coulter uh, issue, mm-hmm. uh, and which, by the way, I coached his dad. But uh, the Kane Coulter issue uh, was all brought about by a meeting with some guys from UCLA. This has been in the works for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, the same group from UCLA has been trying to get this through. They've been trying to rally. Uh, they had a lawsuit. They lost the lawsuit. And, you know, it's this has been just under the – not not under the radar so much, but under the surface that's just been boiling over here and there, and then it'll come up and then it'll get covered up. But it's it's been out there for years, and and really the this this Pac-12 group uh, is is orchestrated by the same people, exact same guy that was a UCLA player and student. Uh, it, it's all the same people organizing this thing, and has been for 20 years. They finally. Because everybody's out of work and they have a lot of time on their hands. The Black Lives Matter thing surfaced huge. And now all of a sudden they have a lot more opportunity to get what they would like to say out there. And more people are going to listen because they got time to listen. They don't have all these other things in their life to try to keep going. So uh, all of a sudden now th- there is an audience for for their discussions. And... Uh, it's, it's just going to come to a peak somewhere. There's going to be a big collision between what's been big-time college athletics 
and what it's going to be and player demands. There's going to be a huge collision here, and it's coming pretty soon. And what I think, and this is just me, is what I said before, mm-hmm. uh, uh, developmental league, everybody who wants to get paid for playing sports, go there. Uh, everybody else that wants to go to college, uh, get, a, get a college degree, uh, put up with the, the, you know, how hard it is and all this sort of stuff, but play there, you can do that. I mean, that's the only really logical solution to all this. So, and I think it's coming, and, you know, it's being forced. With recruiting, <laughs> so a Trevor Lawrence may not end up at Clemson, okay? Uh, what do you do if you're a college coach? How soon do you have to reevaluate moving on from a kid? Uh, at, at a quarterback spot or a great left tackle or a stud defensive tackle. Uh, if you're Nick Saban, where you get slews of five-star dudes and they get coached up by you, uh, this is a, a whole new wrinkle in the recruiting game, isn't it? Well, it will be. Uh, what happens now is you're not recruiting against other schools. You're recruiting against the NFL. And so um, you got to figure out whether, one, whether, whether it's worth doing Sure. Because um, if they're unhappy now, can you imagine uh, if they make the decision to go to college and go through the traditional system and all their buddies are out in the USFL for, you know, let's just use that as an example. Sure. Um, and, I mean, it's just going to create all sorts of issues. So I think you got to really decide. You're, these guys are all going to have to decide, really, who is it? that's going to stay in your program and who is it that isn't going to be a problem in your program now you know i also see that the level the quality of college football is if that happens if it goes by what i say think it's going to go it's not going to be the same on saturday as it has been uh our fans of college football still going to, I mean, they will in Lincoln, but mm-hmm. anywhere else, are they still going to rally and support that state school and uh, football program? Because, you know, it's it's not going to be the same quality if, if that happens. Coach, what's your, your uh, read on the accusations up the road at Colorado State? Um, well, I, I think that um, I don't think that's unusual. I think that uh, you know, one, you you want to as a head as a football coach, and we talked about control a little bit early. One mm-hmm. of the things that I always said was you want to make sure that everybody who touches and is involved and sees your players on a day to day basis are all on the same page. Mm-hmm. So you want the control to be able to hire the people that are around them. When you don't have that control, and when all of a sudden you're hiring, or the school is hiring people in the positions of trainers and athletic department people that are around your players all the time, then all of a sudden now um, any little splinter in your system gets blown up and sides are taken. So I sort of see that at the CSU deal. In reality, at the CSU deal, there's 
there's the, what the coaches and some of the players are saying. There's what the staffers and medical people and some of the players are saying, and the truth. Somewhere in there, Somewhere in the middle. you know, and how you sort it out, I don't know whether this investigation uh, that the president is going to put in place, what it's going to show. But um, it, it shows you the importance uh, as a coach of having people who are all on the same page in your organization. And, um, you know, some people can hear that and say, well, you don't, you don't want people who are going to go tell the press and uh, rat on the things that you're doing wrong. Well, you know, hopefully you're not doing things wrong. And hopefully, but, but there's always controversy. There's always people who don't agree with what you're doing. And, but you've got to have everybody in your system on your side understanding and they have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. But so this is a, a pretty common thing in organizations uh, that, that fall apart. You know, I, I used to have an old saying that uh, great teams ninety uh, percent spend ninety percent of their time chasing their dreams and their goals, and ten percent on of their time on internal issues. Hmm. And average teams spend. 50% of their time on internal issues and 50% of their time chasing goals and dreams. Well, it looks like to me CSU's in a 50-50 situation. Gary Barnett's with us. Coach, real quick, uh, a thought on the <laughs> the report with Harbaugh and Ryan Day, the conference call <laughs> that went uh, celebrity deathmatch here, the interruption, the accusation, and then the uh, the team meeting that says let's hang 100 on them. <laughs> hey, it's football. It's Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, we. I mean, it's great to have it. I think what that's the heck? normal, I, right? There's no. Yeah, it means that maybe or at least we'll have that part of college football this year, anyway. Yeah, the hatred. <laughs> did did did, it, did a coach ever rub you wrong? Like just interrupt you or anything like from the old Big Eight, Big Twelve? Uh, probably. Okay, you're just gonna leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it there. All right. All right. Well. Uh, any school? <laughs> no, there's probably there's probably some some places that I and coaches that I wanted I hoped we could beat by more than than one or two points. Okay, but uh, that's just part of the business. I mean, if you're not a, if you're not a competitor, that hasn't happened to you. Anybody you would have gone for three against? <laughs> uh, no. You know, you still you got to be who you are. You know, and that's so fine. That's fine. I, I wouldn't have. <laughs> no, that's okay. The old saying: Why, why'd you, why'd you go for two? Because I couldn't go for three. You know. Um, yeah, that's, right. that's uh, right. Who's winning the PGA? Real quick. Well, right now, Jason Day. I know but, Jason's uh, doing well, but who do you got on Sunday? Oh gosh darn! Um, <laughs> you know that course. That course sets up for uh, for a couple of guys. And Jason Day, you know, didn't play very well last week, but he's one of those guys I think it sets up for. DeChambeau, I don't think it sets up well for him. I I think he's got to be able to bomb it now. He looks like one of the Huskers' defensive ends. He's a big dude. Uh, He's put on 50 pounds, that dude has. Yeah, he's thick. So, um, you know, I don't think Tiger's going to make it on this course. Um, I actually like Jason Day in this thing. Okay. Well, I, I'm. Uh, but Justin I'm, Thomas, Justin Thomas. Okay. You know, don't, don't rule him out. There we go. There we go. Gary Barnett, coach. It was fun to chat. Thanks for a few minutes today. All right, guys. Good okay. to be with you. Good to, good to talk. Bye bye. 
early to rise with Hale Varsity Radio, the voice of Husker Nation. Here's Chris Schmidt and Mark Cranach. Back into it, it's weekend edition, Hale Varsity Radio, presented by the Nebraska Lottery. Mr. Cranach on assignment, baseball uh, going on with the uh, Schmidt household. We say hi to the Iron Horse, it's Gary Sharp with us. Sharpie, what's up, man? Good to talk to you. How you doing? Schmitty, it's always good to talk to you. What a week. What a week when it comes to our sports world from high school all the way to pro. Man, it has uh, spanned the gamut, specifically with uh, the waiting game and the uncertainty about football and will Nebraska play? Will the Big Ten move forward? Commissioner Warren uh, was very proactive with the student-athletes and Nebraska has their schedule. We'll get into that, but we talk uh, about you know, from pro to high school, I was just kind of thinking out loud uh, yesterday and the the effect of, of Omaha Public Schools going to distance learning for at least the first quarter because of the, you know, nearly 60,000 student body coming back. There's no mask mandate. And then just the fear for the students and the teachers. Well, the, uh, the ripple effects uh, causing no fall activities that is football that's volleyball that 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 hurts a lot of kids uh post you know after school that said what's what's been your reaction you've had time to digest it and there's seven seven schools that are hurt athletically with this but there's also a greater health discussion i understand as well well, it's uh, I, I don't envy Cheryl Logan, who is the superintendent here in Omaha. I, I don't envy any anybody trying to make these decisions. Um, it's tough. I mean, it's it it sucks your soul, and it feels like you're going twelve rounds with Mike Tyson every day. And I think what happened here in Omaha, and there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of anger that is going on. Um, you know, her her number one job is first and foremost figure out how to get schools open or at least have some schooling. Um, you know, we failed here in Omaha. The positivity rate went up. Omaha is listed as a hot zone. Uh, that's not good compared to Lincoln. Honestly, Schmitty, 10 days ago, I thought this would be flipped, that LPS would not go forward with sports and OPS would find a way even with the delay. Um, but things didn't get better here in Omaha. And, you know, sometimes you don't deserve sports, but I think there's a lot of disappointment, and I'm going to be very curious over the weekend to see – how many of the private schools in this area, from Creighton Prep all the way down to Scott and beyond, how much of an inquiry they get from athletes in the fall on possibly transferring right before school starts? Um, I know I know a couple of uh, high school coaches, non-OPS, that have won championships, played for championships recently. They've gotten feelers, but the timing may not be right. Um, but there's a lot of disappointment from parents, from athletes, um, you know, and a lot of confusion on what happens now. Do they still get a season? Will they be able to have a season starting in October? What will that look like? You know, the NSA, I think, did a great job of putting together a roadmap that had some flexibility in it. I don't think they expected OPS to do go this route. I think they expected OPS to wait until the end of August. But we are in this situation now, and uh, we have to move forward. And I think everybody around here outside of OPS will move forward. But I can tell you there are a lot of, uh, of student-athletes that are very, very upset. And they don't get the, you know, in the, in the moment, they've had a lot of things taken away from them. They would love to have their last year of competition. It looks like it's not going to happen. And I'll be curious to see what the fallout is into the next week or so to see how many of these athletes that I follow and cover 
end up going to another school just so they can have their senior year of competition. Gary Sharps with us, the Iron Horse, Hale Varsity Radio, talking about OPS's decision to uh, put a halt on uh, fall sports and and activities. You've got a uh, online learning environment, uh, at least through the middle of October, uh, distance learning. So the NSAA earlier in the week said they're not going to alter the transfer rule. Do they revisit that? Or are they pretty steadfast? And kind of lay it out for me from an NSAA standpoint. I mean, I've, I've spoke with, with their folks, but it's been quick halftime interviews during state tournament. What's what's the protocol? Uh, does the NSAA govern like a Scott or a Pius or or a, a prep? Or is the is the the transfer rule more about within going from like a Burke, say, to a Benson or a North to a Central type deal? Well, it would be the, the four you just mentioned are all OPS schools, so it would yeah. be like a North going to a Millard North. Gotcha. Um, and, and you got to, you know, you can transfer, but you got to sit out 90 days. Right. Um, you know, unless you have an address that all of a sudden is in the Millard District. That's why I think the private school option could be a, a possibility. You know, the NSA is pretty steadfast. I mean, they're very cognizant of all the recruiting that goes on here in Omaha and some of the shady stuff that it that goes on. Um, you know, they've kind of tried to put their foot down with this to say, hey, we're not going to waive the rules because there's been inquiries from out of state, whether it be Colorado, Minnesota, uh, Illinois. Hey, we've, we'd like to come and play our last season of uh, our last semester of uh, high school athletics. Our our state isn't allowing football. Can we come there? That's happened. Um but here's what I think will happen, and this could get where it gets a little bit ugly. For the parent that, you know, they're not going to go to a private school, they want to go Omaha North to Millard North, and they're not allowed, do they get lawyers involved? It's just, it's so 2020, it's unfortunate. To be honest, I didn't think we'd be sitting here on August 8th having this discussion that we'd still be in this spot. Um, but again, I, in you know, the short amount of time since it's been announced, Schmitty, I, my phone is blown up with coaches' texts that are angry, um, and they're sharing information from their athletes that are confused, and they are angry. So this is this is far from being over, um, and I'll be curious to see what it does to the future of athletics at OPS, whether it be involvement, graduation rates, so on and so forth. And you know, it seems weird to be talking about this because the first thing, and the most important thing, is we got to have kids go to school. Yeah. But I think we understand where you live, where I live, how important sports are as part of the whole high school experience. Gary Sharps with us, uh, the Iron Horse uh, Weekend Edition, Hale Varsity Radio. Sharpie, uh, a thought. Now let's move to Nebraska. Uh, Sparty has been added. Speaking of high school sports, East Lansing has shut down uh, high school athletics in, in their backyard. So if there's no high school ball, do you think there can be college football in East Lansing? That's a, that's a bigger discussion point, but Sparty's the extra crossover, Iowa, Wisconsin moved up. Minnesota took a blow. Penn state took a blow with two of their big time dudes opting out. And uh, Rutgers is Nebraska's draw with Noah Vedral waiting to try and throw for three bills. <laughs> uh, give me some thoughts on, on what you think about how this thing was, navigated by Commissioner Warren. You have the student-athlete voice that's been very loud this week. And then just overall, as you look at Nebraska, if, if we get to get all 10 games, how it sets up for the Big Red? Well, I think, first of all, it's a template. I mean, we all understand that. you got to have some flexibility. Nebraska may not play the opening week. They not, might not play the 
the second week, so when do those games get moved? Um, I thought Wednesday was a good day. It was excited to look at a 10-game schedule and go through it and go win, loss, win, 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 and say, man, if Nebraska gets off to a 2-0 start, which they haven't done since 16, they can finish with two wins. Can they find two in the middle? They've got that four-game stretch. That was kind of fun. It's kind of fun to have camp open up, but it's that nervous excitement, and when you stand in the middle of a house of cards, you're just hoping that you can continue that house still is up there. Um, I like what Kevin Warren did. Uh, he took input of the student-athlete. I think he's realistic that this may not happen. It's kind of a, here's our schedule if we play. Uh, I think it's very manageable for Nebraska. It's at least 5-5. Five and five. You could get another win out of there, which would mean that you beat, a, you know, beat teams that were projected below you and maybe you steal one against the upper echelon teams that are on your schedule. I think it gives you some excitement, but I think we're all realistic that it may or may not happen. But for that one moment, we got excited about this schedule. Now, it is in unprecedented times. I've never seen it like this, and I've covered college athletics for a couple of decades, of the voice of the student-athlete. And I think it's a good thing to have discussions. The movement, the mission, the platform has never been as big as it is now for student-athletes. I thought some of the things the Pac-12 players were asking for, especially on the financial side, were unrealistic. I think we saw the Big Ten players were a little bit more realistic. Kind of curious about uh, complimentary access for their families to the Big Ten Network. I mean, that says a lot about BTN. I think it was, um, it was curious that Nebraska players on Wednesday came out in support of what's going on behind the scenes, that they're safe at Nebraska, that they're excited to play. I don't think that was forced, because if that was forced, we'd hear about it, and that would be a bad look for Nebraska. Um, you know, and, and other and Ohio State players saying, we're not necessarily in this Big Ten United. We feel like we're being taken care of. But on the other hand, Schmitty, you've got Bateman, you've got Parsons, you've got Moore, you've got six players at Maryland, you've got other players that are either opting out or going to take a redshirt year, and you wonder, man, do they know something that we don't know? Is it just leading to the inevitable? It could be, but for one day, we were, like, excited, and we think, could it really happen that four weeks from today, Nebraska's playing a college football game? Buckle up. We've, we've ridden this Rona roller coaster for over 20 weeks now, and now we're into the real meat and potatoes that football is on the doorstep, and is it going to happen? We don't know. I keep saying the hardest thing with college football is the first word college and colleges are opening up and they're opening up in nebraska a week earlier so you're going to be into camp for 10 days and then you're going to add about 30,000 students to your campus how is that going to look and can you go from your de facto bubble that you've had since june 1 can you keep it secure and can you keep guys together that you have the opportunity to plan september 5th but i think it's going to be very difficult i, I think it'd be difficult for rutgers to be prepared for that game i would i would be very surprised right now if that game is played i don't disagree with you and we'll see if nebraska's openers against illinois or if it's a wisconsin or if we get that far down the road and yeah well, you you're well, right how about the, go ahead how about this Schmitty? you could have i mean this is this is wild this is this is so nebraska where they're at right now if the Rutgers game did not happen, that'd be the second time in Scott's three years as the head coach that the opening game had gotten postponed. You know what? And, and <laughs> it, it, yeah, is is much joy and positivity that exuded in this state when he came back home. 
it has been anything but easy or smooth since he's been here. And that's it's all out of his hand. A lot of it's out of his hands. When we talk about camp battles, there's a lot to get into the wideouts, the uh, the offensive line positions, defensive line quarterback. And we could we could spend hours, and I know that would just make your Saturday going over yeah. all of it. But I want to I want to focus on on the quarterback, and I think we both think Adrian's poised for a, a good uh, year three. That's that said, talk to me about the the leash here with how Scott will handle that. As in, okay, you're allowed to be human, but there's a reality of, all right, you've got someone in the rear view that is coming up on your bumper in a, in a Luke McCaffrey who may be further along in the passing side of things. You know what he can do as a runner. Uh, what do you anticipate with this quarterback battle here this, uh, this summer and in, into fall? I don't think Scott has to worry about Adrian because if Adrian is who he thinks he is, from the time that he recruited him, when he saw him as a freshman, what he battled through last year, Adrian will be driven by the fact that there's a lot of doubters out there and that now they've lit a fire under him, and it's go time. I mean, it's, I don't think the leash is very long, but I don't think they're going to worry about Adrian Martinez. I firmly believe that Adrian Martinez will get to be to a consistency point. I don't think he's a guy that can elevate people around him. I think he's a guy that also is good, as good as the people that are around him. Mm-hmm. All they need is some consistent quarterback play. It's the most important position in pandemic football this year, even more because you've got to have stability there. You can't have hiccups at quarterback. You've got to have somebody that can deliver the football and do all the right things so you don't have to worry about it. I don't think Nebraska will worry about their quarterback position because if they're worrying about their quarterback position, that means they're probably all the way down to Logan Smothers. They have a nice, nice option if Adrian doesn't respond. I think Adrian responds. We closed the book on 2019. We know that he got lax in his preparation. Uh, he got injured. Uh, he had a bad season. He didn't have a lot of things around him didn't go right. I think that's improved. I think he'll be better this year. Not Superman, but he'll be a good, solid supporting actor where Nebraska can move forward with an offense that really, if you think about it, the only questions are, can Ben Hart step up? Who plays left guard? Who's going to be the number two wide receiver, number three behind Wandale Robinson? Who's going to carry the ball when Dedrick Mills needs to blow? And how are you going to use all those tight ends? And especially, how big of a threat is Vokalek going to be? I don't think you worry about quarterbacks. Some will. I know they do. That's what we do here. In my case, I don't think so. I think Adrian gets to a consistency point in year number three. And if that's not the case, you've moved on. And the thing to keep in mind is once you move on from Adrian, you don't go back. You make the change, then it would be a Luke McCaffrey, and Adrian Martinez would be done. I don't think he's done. I think he starts, and I think if he stays healthy, he plays the whole season. Gary Sharps with us, Sale Varsity Radio Weekend Edition, the Iron Horse. Sharpie will end with this, and defensive line, Stilly is your leader uh, in that front uh, three. You've got options. You have names. You have folks that are unproven, uh, some that, that – you feel really good about in in the little glimpse you saw that being a Ty Robinson, you've got some Juco talent uh, that that might be uh, a a nice surprise or ready to go in a Riley. What do you get from Akeem Green? Uh, Also, you've got a couple of the kids that are now sophomores or redshirt sophomores in in Wildeman and Rogers that can they stay healthy and contribute? But I'm really anxious. Who are the running mates next to Stilly? I know the names, but what do you think their 
ability is going to be? I mean, what type of jump are we going to see potentially uh, from a guy like Daniels, from a guy like DeAndre Thomas, or uh, you've got the JUCO options, uh, three JUCO guys that can play on that interior. Is the, is the, is the D-line ready to, to kind of take a step forward and be part of the solution versus sometimes a problem? Um, they're all valid questions, and there's a lot of unknowns there outside of the guy that wears 95 and it seems like he's been in the program forever. Um, you know, Tony Tuioti has some depth. He has uh, bodies that are starting to look like a Big Ten defensive line. I'm encouraged by the depth, and I'm intrigued. I think this defensive line is a year away, but physically they look more like a Big Ten defensive line. They need some of the junior college players to step forward. I purchased stock in uh, Keem Green, I think he's got his body right, he's got his mind right, and I think he'll be what we thought he was going to be last year, and he'll be on the field. You know, you've got Thomas and Daniels, who have been here for a while. It's go time, where you're going to get passed by. But they're going to need a contribution out of the, the pains and the other junior college players that are in that position group. That's the biggest concern that I have about Nebraska, because that defensive line wasn't fantastic last year, And remember, they had two guys drafted, and all three of the main players on that line last year are in the NFL. Now, you have guys that are focused, you have guys that want to be here, guys that don't have a past, that they want to go out and play. I think there's a plethora of players there. It's Tony Tuioti's job to get them ready to play, but I think you could see eight to ten guys uh, go through there, and hopefully Ben Stilley holds down one side and you have some stability there. But I I still think they're a year away, but physically – they're getting closer. Gary Sharp's with us, the Iron Horse, Sale Varsity Radio. Sharpie, we'll be back next week. We'll uh, chat some more Nebraska football, hopefully more uh, Camp Confidential stuff as football rages forward. Have a good rest of your weekend. Thanks for checking in, man. As always, many thanks.